Hi, I'm Dodie Dorn, and I'm the film editor. It's my second film with Ridley. And uh, the Scott Free logo. Apparently, um, Ridley had this drawn by an Italian artist in the 80s, and um, we resurrected it for Magic Men. But because this is 235, we had to do, reformat it so that you could see all of the details of the artistry of it. Actually, it's meant to be a little bit from the third man, the guy running in the door opening. And so the door opening was off the frame in, in, one eight, uh, in 235. So we had to reconfigure that. We really, uh, I don't know if the word suffered is right for these cards, but we went through a lot of different permutations for the text of these cards. And really the, the purpose of them to kind of land you in this different place and time. And they kept getting more complicated and longer and longer and more words and more words. And then we came back around to kind of something simpler and more direct. The last card, One Night Returns Home in Search of His Son. At one point that was One Night Returns Home in Search of a Son He Never Met. And all of these sort of additional complications to the text. And uh, we were a lot more comfortable when we just came back to something very simple, kind of poetic and elegant. This was the first day of shooting, and and I was there. And, and this cut is very close to my original. One of the big things, not big things, but among the things we had taken out in the theatrical were those kind of niceties, like the rotten apple with the worm. And those are things that are just indicative of the time and place. Being in Europe in the middle of winter, where they didn't have anything, any fresh fruit or 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 food or produce, mainly to set up the contrast between this world and the so-called new world in the area of Jerusalem where the holy wars were. So that I felt I was really sad to take that out the the apple and quite happy to put it back in. Then also the dialogue from the gravedigger. I mean, by taking his dialogue out, he became a much smaller character. So there were things later in the film that had a kind of a trickle-down effect that we had to take out of the gravedigger as well. Because once you didn't get a good look at him, who he was and, and how he showed up later on didn't have the same meaning. And the reason why we were kind of hooked on having him show up later was that it was another example of the way somebody who was a nobody could leave this world and go to that world, the new world, and become a somebody, i.e. a knight. Or at first he goes as a soldier and then he gets knighted by Balian. So we really needed to establish that his character here as somebody who not only was a gravedigger but that had been imprisoned, which was told through some dialogue where he says, I love justice, although he refers to the fact that his ear is notched, which would have been a common punishment for a thief during that time. So he would have been imprisoned and now a gravedigger, and then he gets to go to the New World and become a soldier and then a knight. And anyway, I think it was nice detail to flesh that out again. Um, also, his dialogue is kind of explaining that a person who committed suicide was condemned 
and considered to be, you know, not holy and somebody who was definitely going to go to hell by the references to the devil. The one thing that we didn't add back was the gravedigger was singing a little song and um, we decided to take the little song out. We decided that before we really shortened the film for the theatrical release, so the song was already gone. But there's a remnant of the song in both versions where you can just hear him singing off camera. Your brother, you were spoken to? So through this scene, we're learning that the priest is Balian's brother and that the bishop has use for him and that Balian is imprisoned and why? Because a uh, spouse would be implicated as prison-worthy because their um, wife or husband had committed suicide. And we also get to see that the priest is, is a pretty bad guy. He takes the money and he clearly wants his brother in prison. So not having this scene in, not having several scenes in, it kind of thinned out our ability to really, f I mean, we weren't able to flesh out um, the relationship as much between Balian and the brother. And, and the way that really um, affected the story is that it did seem a little bit, uh, perhaps it felt a little bit unjust that Balian um, killed the priest in the first place. But with all of this added material, I think it becomes very clear that there's a long-term uh, antagonistic relationship between the two brothers, and um, and the killing of the priest is is a final culmination of all that. This scene, to me, I really missed this scene, and um, I'm very happy we were able to put it back, because to me this just sort of sets the tone for the depth and the meaning of Balian's relationship with his wife and how much what how great his loss was at her suicide and again there's another reference to this uh, planting of the tree where we see at the end that the tree that the wife planted is now more than a little sapling but it's a small tree at the end of the film and that kind of life-affirming circle and connection is really gratifying and part of Ridley's plan from the very beginning. is He really was reaching for a very broad canvas that had an epic proportion from the small and the mundane to the grand. Also through here, the establishing of this whole world in the village and all of the politics and visually establishing the world was really shortchanged in the theatrical where we barely got to see the village, which is, I think, really beautifully constructed. And then this scenario here where we're learning that Godfrey not only came through town and had an affair with Balian's mother, but actually is from this town, the younger brother of the the um, the lord of the town, which is also a common thing. I think there's a parallel here between Balian and the priest and Godfrey and his older brother. The older brother would have generally been the one who inherited all of the wealth from a father and Therefore, Godfrey went on and then became a lord in Jerusalem. And the same thing happened, though, in a certain way with Balian and the priest. Balian had inherited the forge, and the priest had here some 
envy of that. In this case, because Godfrey has gone to Jerusalem and has done well by himself, there's some plotting that goes on between the Lord and his son, Godfrey's nephew, that sort of sets up what this fight in the forest might be all about. So it adds an additional motive for why they have the ambush in the woods, whereas in the shorter theatrical release, the ambush is all about the town looking for the person who killed the priest. So I think, again, it's a more fleshed-out story. How is that for the lot of the younger brother? With no heir comes to me, and thus to you. Here we, I really missed the longing and sort of sadness on Godfrey's face as he looks out to the village in anticipation of reconnecting with Balian. That that was a very strong moment. The scene was in and out quite a bit, but I felt pretty strongly about it because of how aggressive the priest is to Balian and how much you can see that Balian is just trying to hold it together and not react to this priest, to his brother, who is really tor obviously tormenting him. And then also at the end, by sitting at the crossroads and digging his hands into the snow, you get, again, the sort of intensity of his sense of loss about his wife. That is a sin. Going on location was a lot of fun because I followed the production around, and in Spain particularly, we were moving all over the place. We started out in Loire, and I was in a little town of Huesca, and we had a trailer with a screening facility in it with an Airy Lock Pro. So we would screen every night on film. And then I was cutting on a um, Avid DV Express because most of my team was in Madrid. So they would be bringing up hard drives and I would just cut on the DV Express. And I did that for the first six weeks or so until we went to Seville. And then I was reunited with the rest of my team and started working on my larger Avid. But I was able to cut right along and be there to show Ridley scenes as, um, as we were shooting. It was great to be with the production. I really enjoyed that. So yeah, we were in Luare, then we went to uh, Segovia and Torre Caballeros, then we went to Palma del Rio. We shot in Avila also and uh, finally landed in Seville for a couple weeks. Yeah, there's a lot of additional material in this scene that gives some backstory to Balian about who he is and what other kind of things he's done in the past and why he might be valuable to the Crusaders. And again, you get to see the priest trying to sell, sort of sell him, almost like a commodity to the... To the um, Crusaders, and it's more of the fabric of the antagonistic relationship between Balian and the priest. Yes, 
An artificer, according to your lord and this priest. You have my sympathy and my blessing. Your dead wife and stillborn child are today the subject of my prayers. We need all these horses shod. We need food, and we'll pay. Says yes. He has made great engines for sieges. He has made war machines that cast the largest stones. He also works finely in silver. He would be one of the few on your journey worth more alive than dead. Shut up. Have you been at war? On horse. Some of the questions that Odo's asking him are almost like him being interviewed for whether or not he would be useful to take along. This flashback from of Godfrey to Balian's um, mother, I think it's very nice and lyrical parallel to have the this very nice flashback again in the we're in the dead of winter yet we get this brief glimpse into what a springtime day might look like and and you feel feel this incredible sense of longing from Godfrey that is a parallel to the loss that Balian has um, shown for his his wife so I think that helps to create a bond between Godfrey and Balian This scene is really funny because basically this scene was the the hospitaller representing himself as the confessor for Godfrey that he asks him if he advises that he should still come forward and claim Balian as his son. And we had done a reshoot at the very end to kind of spell it out. And we did it on um, David Thewlis so that we could squeeze in some more information that was actually being lost by having taken out some of the other scenes. And now that the rest of the scenes around it were fleshed out, it was no longer necessary to do that, so we restored it to the original shape. And the dialogue is more oblique, but the information is all there. And I'd like to believe it's more engaging when you give the audience something to figure out. This scene is almost exactly the same as it was from my very first cut. Um, Liam does such an amazing performance. There's so much in his eyes, and you can really feel his nervousness about trying to cough up the information to Balian that he's um, his father. The big difference between this, the theatrical release, and this cut is that we... We added back the line, I knew your namesake. We put that line back in, and we took out the line, I'm your father. So we, again, were allowing the kind of oblique language of the time, which was probably more accurate and more appropriate, to play out. And um, I think that it does better service to Liam's performance this way. Forgiveness to ask of you. 
I think it's more appropriate in this configuration for the time and place and what what somebody would have said. I mean, he was having a hard time choking out the information, so I don't think he would have ever said it that directly. But again, because we were speeding up this backstory, we needed to make sure that it was clear in the theatrical. If you will come with me, you will have the living and we'll have my facts. The scene in the in the forge itself also had we didn't do reshoots for the theatrical release, but we did a lot of ADR. We were, again, kind of cramming a lot of information in so we could shorten the scene. If you want anything of me, take it now. I want nothing. I am sorry for your troubles. God protect you. Oh, this is interesting, actually. We added back a couple of shots of Balian's helper here in this scene. And and um, I really like it because it creates this feeling of these crusaders like they're cowboys. And this little apprentice is watching them ride off with this longing in his eyes because it's sort of like he wants to go with them. It's like he wants to go out on the road and out on the open trail and ride off with these crusaders who are really being presented as very romantic characters. And also maybe the idea that going with the crusaders will get you out of this very dismal, dismal place. So this scene, it's refreshing to have been able to restore some of the original dialogue. You get more of the dynamic of the tension between the priest and Balian and their different positions in the village and how the priest uses the church to try to um, sort of wield power over Balian, talking about what will happen if Balian goes with the Crusaders, that the the priest will actually get his property and and um, and all of that sort of thing. And then you see him so directly taunting Balian about, about his wife. And then he also tries to lure him with the idea that going with the Crusaders might be sort of an opportunity for Balian to, um, to be exonerated from his sins. His sin being that he was married to someone who committed suicide. That being the prevalent notion at the time. I put it delicately. She was a suicide. She is in hell. We were kind of constantly writing and rewriting lines that would go off camera and then we would record them in the editing room and put them in and see which ones would fit and which ones wouldn't. And, I mean, I think that we recorded, in some cases, some of these ADR lines with the actor for three, four, and five times. So there were lots of different attempts to um, get the information in and into sort of more uh, contemporary vernacular so that we would be sure that people would understand what was going on. 
And then, uh, I mean, and we would just do different variations. And for some reason, there seemed to be a big question whether or not Liam, whether or not Godfrey was Balian's father. So I was on the lookout like a hawk for any place where I could have Godfrey say, my son, or Balian, my son, or I'm your father, in other ways. Not in that one particular scene, but in whatever different places. So I probably went way overboard. We had the material available, and then in the mix, we would kind of judiciously thread them in and, you know... I hope we didn't overdo it, but, uh, you know, there's always a risk that you will. All through dailies, Ridley will be playing around with that and saying, yeah, play this at, at 12, play this at, at 48. And one of the great things about the Lock Pro is there's a rheostat, and you can play it at 8 frames a second or 12 frames a second or 3 frames a second or double speed or triple speed, and he just will be playing things at different speeds all the way through dailies, which gives me a lot of ideas about different ways to to manipulate the material. Is it true? We can find out together. Show me your hand. So this is, I was really happy we got to put this scene back in. I mean, I hope that people get it, that he's peeing upstream and the guy's brushing his teeth using the water downstream. And the what Ridley was trying to represent was that during that time, too, this guy who's from down south somewhere had more, was more advanced uh, uh, hygiene than, uh, than, the, than the Crusaders from Europe. And that would have been accurate at that time. I love this this little bit with the uh, rabbit grease. I don't know if anybody gets this, but he's you, he's got the rabbit grease to grease up Godfrey's chainmail, which that's Godfrey's chainmail right there in the background, which is why Godfrey wasn't wearing his chainmail, which is why he was vulnerable and was able to get shot in the side by the arrow. And um, that that's the kind of detail that Ridley just puts in everywhere. So much thought into these things. And um, it's only the kind of thing that you'll get to see and understand if you see the film many times. So here's the guy who was peeing in the river going off to um, for his morning constitutional. <laughs> Is that what they call it? <laughs> and... Uh, and I think I heard from someone that the scene of him getting shot in the face while he's taking a crap was the very first storyboard that Ridley drew for this film. So again, it's gratifying. I think that the whole idea of like, how do these guys, what do they do when they've got all of this, this gear on? And basically, well, they do what everybody else does. Is the answer. But I think there's something great about bringing it down to the the very mundane. Just like the um, brushing the teeth and taking a piss in the in the morning is it's like a bunch of guys out camping. And I think that helps to 
allow an audience to identify with characters more. I, I love that. <laughs> Who knew that I would love something so bloody? So, <laughs> I mean, the to me, the, the ambush is a really interesting scene uh, because it is a pretty visceral, violent scene. And one of the things we did for the theatrical was take out a lot of the blood. And I'm sure it's understandable to anybody listening to this DVD that there is on occasion an impetus to take blood out of, of violent scenes. I, for one, normally I don't even like violent scenes, but I felt like the blood, we were, I felt like it was more true to this scenario to have the blood. So when we uh, committed to doing this, really was good with uh, putting some of the blood back. So it's not that different from the theatrical, but there are probably 10 or 12 shots of additional blood and a couple of other shots, some added, like, sort of visceral violence. Oh, well, of course, the other thing that's added back is the dialogue from the nephew that explains he's the nephew and that the uncle had sent him and that, you know, he says, you're my uncle, I must give you the road. Rather than you're a knight, I must give you the road. One of the big things that I changed almost at the very end was this, um, right off the bat, we had Bailey and springing into action, and he was one of the first ones in the fight to be like hitting his mark and going great guns. Uh, we decided pretty close to the end that maybe we should move his action into the middle so that it didn't seem too Hollywood where, you know, he's our hero, he's just going to... He's, he's going to be the star of the show. We try to mix it up and make it a little bit more realistic in that way. One of the few shots that I added um, to the ambush is the shot of, a closer shot of the horse crossing the river. And um, I wanted to add that because I wanted to, make, to have it be more visible that from the archer's point of view, he could look and see the horse and to him it's just a horse riding across the river where in fact the hospitaller is crouched on the other side of the horse you know hi hiding in order to get across or really he's sort of shielding himself by the horse to get across the river without getting shot by an arrow so I added that back and I think I added a couple more beats on Balian's first hit after he jumps over the logs Kevin McKidd, I loved what he did. He seemed like such a, a, a stud uh, crusader and the way he wielded his tools. And so I liked showing it sort of without cutting, without, or I mean, obviously there are jillions of cuts here, but without cutting away. Um, and the way that I kind of gave juice to what he was doing was just by cutting out frames, specific frames here and there, just to sort of, um, I don't know, I felt like it gave some more energy to his actions. The bit of, of uh, Godfrey breaking the arrow off, I have to say that the uh, insert, which we, I don't remember when we shot that, but it wasn't shot on, it wasn't shot originally. And it was finally, uh, it was just 
was really strange and it just wasn't working quite. And uh, Wes Sewell suggested that we flop the shot. So even though I'm talking about the insert of the arrow breaking off. So even though it's not correct literally uh, in terms of the way the arrow breaks, um, sort of narratively, not narratively, but just sort of movement-wise, having flopped the shot, I think allowed you to feel like Godfrey was lowering his sword and breaking his arrow off at the same time. This Roger de Cormier scene, when I saw the dailies, I was so excited. I had to run back to my editing room and cut this scene because, believe it or not, there isn't really much other material than what you're seeing. He's kneeling on the ground, which is kind of hard to tell until you see this angle. And um, it's very, it's good, it's really interesting the way that it was shot. So I was really excited about cutting it. And I thought it was so brutal and so um, shocking in how brutal it was. That... Uh, and it's very bizarre that that kind of brutality can also have like sort of some strange humor in it. So uh, from an editorial point of view, that was a lot of fun to, to cut that. This was an insert shot of the um, pliers trying to get the arrow out. I think some people are grossed out by that. But I like it because I think it makes you really feel the pain that he must be in. And the concept that an arrow could go in and that you wouldn't be able to get it out. I like driving that idea home. I'd like to think that by now people are much more engaged by the journey that Balian is going on, and actually the journey of Balian and Godfrey together, because they're, both of their stories have been fleshed out so much more that there's so much more at stake between the two of them as a result of the fleshed-out backstory. So do I. The one thing we added in here, we took a... We had... Um, what does he say? Uh, to kill an infidel, the Pope has said, is not murder. It is, it is the path to heaven. And we had taken out the word, the Pope. So I don't know why, because, of course, it's historically accurate. To kill an infidel, the Pope had said, is not murder. It is, a, the, pa it is the path to heaven. That's, that's literally historically accurate. So we put the Pope back in for the uh, director's cut. I felt, again, that it was really good. We added the, the scene where, um, where the hospitaler is talking to the old man who's taking the children to Jerusalem. And I think that we wanted this pilgrim camp to be this place where you see how many people were going and, how, and kind of how crazy it was. And there were uh, people who were leading children to the Holy Land, lots and lots of children, and um, I thought it was good that we, we see a little bit of that. And then we kind of fleshed out the head of the, of the building, of them um, setting up camp. 
And again, I think that the details all the way down to the mundane just help you uh, see and feel more what that journey was like. There's a scene coming up here that I didn't put back in, that we didn't put back in, um, which I think will be in the extras, right here, where um, Godfrey asks that uh, Balian be dressed as his squire, and he says, I want him with me. He's not to be fed in the kitchens, I want him with me. And I think that that, uh, even though it's a nice piece, I think that this scene here... Uh, is substantial enough to sort of show that Godfrey has laid his claim on Balian and is saying without hesitation that he accepts him as his son. And that other scene was sort of a repeat of that information. I think when we when it was originally shot, the reason it was shot was to justify why Balian is suddenly in these regal clothes and in the in the um, wearing the. Uh, the garb of, of Evelyn. So, I mean, I think that a lot of times when you're shooting a film of this scale and of this scope, you, you want to shoot everything so that if questions come up, you have a way to explain it. And I think that was a case of, of that with that scene. together, or between Salahadin and the king we try. Did you think that lay at the end of crusade? There was a Pope scene that was in one of the drafts of the script that was taken out. And, um, and I think that, I mean, this is such a, a rich period in history that it's always going to be hard to decide what you can show and what you can't. Pilgrims, if they have money. And Italy becomes rich as the savior intended. We extended the head of this scene as well, where we had some more. It's just sort of, um, it's kind of a history lesson. You, you could call it a history. We called it the history lesson, where they talk about how what kind of trading and shipping is going on in and out of this port and what kind of an impact it's having on Italy and why Italy is so, is so rich at this time because it's the port where goods are coming in and people are going out and so it's just a very active and rich trading port. Jerusalem will be no place for friends of Muslims or traitors to Christendom. This scene, believe it or not, was a scene that 
was potentially in and out at different times, but uh, I think it's really essential to establish the enmity between uh, Balian and Guy. Keep it. My lord, how will you ride if you have no stick to beat the horse? He will be king in Jerusalem one day. Nobody really is conscious of the fact, by nobody, I mean the public at large, let's say, is really conscious of the fact that this era is, is pre, I guess, rudders in, the, in boats, that boats were basically like wooden bathtubs, and they got in, and they tried to steer with oars and sails, but they didn't really have a rudder that could direct them. So a boat travel was extremely dangerous, and the chances of you surviving were kind of actually unlikely. It's one of those things. All you really need to do is have him get to the other side and be alone because you need to have him have to find his way to Jerusalem. You don't want him to just be, you know, carried there. You know, you need him to land there unaccompanied, so to speak. So it was a big decision. I'm sure that there were just like a couple of pages that they could rip out of the script and say, well, that's $5 million or whatever it was. And so they did. They just took those pages out of the script, but they didn't really replace it with anything else. And that included that we didn't have a shot of Bailey and getting on a boat. We didn't have a shot of a boat leaving. We didn't have a shot, any kind of shot of a boat at sea. We didn't really have anything. And so um, what we did have was Balian standing on the dock, on the not on the dock, sort of on an embankment above the dock, over the water. And we had um, Kevin McKidd reciting a poem or a prayer, really. And then we had a shot of a dummy of Kevin McKidd dead on the shore. And so that was supposed to represent, well, okay, they got on the boat and they, everybody died because here's Kevin McKidd dead and the whole shore is littered with shipwreck and dead bodies. So it was definitely a, um, a gap. By the way, that scene was another one where we did a reshoot at the last minute of the Hospitaller. And um, that was um, what we, it was another way of trying to add the information that it was a dangerous journey. So we say this voyage can be perilous. So we tried to add that. 
And then these shots were all taken from uh, lots of different places. Some of it's stock footage, some of it's created shots from um, 100%, you know, fabricated by visual effects. There are shots of people huddling are all from the, um, the siege uh, at the end of the film. We took that and then uh, visual effects treated them. And um, and then, you know, the way we got into this whole scene ch changed so many times because it had always started with the pan off of the close-up of Kevin McKidd's face, which was a, it was a dummy. And we had always had the hope that if we were going to play it that way, that we would get to do a close-up of his real face with a crab crawling around his face or coming out of his mouth or something like that because the dummy never really did look that good. So none of that happened, and it was really all fabricated with visual effects and sound effects and music. And I think you get the, the picture of what happened. That's one of my favorite visual effects in the film. The rope around the horse's ankle, which is a visual effect. And you need to look. It needs, they, they, they couldn't really safely tie the horse up and have him run away and break the, the rope. So they just had him run away. And then we added the rope in visual effects with sound effects and visual effects snap and all that. We had a lot of material of Balian wandering through the desert and what we finally came around to was that the point was that he needed to catch this catch this horse so we we just tightened that up. The minute that we started um, taking out substantial chunks of the story, I knew there would be a longer cut. I mean, there's such a big difference between the theatrical and, and the director's cut. They're real, they really are like two different movies. One is a story that follows the character of Balian on a journey from Europe to Jerusalem, and the other is a very dense a story of, of a lot of characters and, and, and what happens. So the richness of those other characters was diminished so greatly, and I think that, in fact, it diminishes, inadvertently diminishes Balian's journey as well, because in his journey as part of a bigger picture, I think it's more, um, I just think it's richer. But that, you know, that's my opinion, for what it's worth. I like the theatrical cut, too. I think that there are two different kinds of films. This is more, I don't like to call a historical epic a, 
an action adventure, but that it, it it does have more of like kind of an action adventure kind of tempo to it. And there's so much story to tell that it doesn't really have an action, it doesn't have action adventure length. It still was two hours and 27 minutes. So that's kind of long for an action adventure. But as a historical epic at three hours and eight minutes, it feels about right. To me, that's a strange dynamic that a shorter film can feel longer and a longer film can feel shorter. And I think that's just a matter of, of um, a question of, of denseness and character development and backstory and how much you're allowing the audience to get engaged by the characters they're going to spend that much time with. I, as an editor, I can make my claims and I can express my opinion. And, and finally, in the end of the day, it is the director's film. And sometimes, you know, you know, check your ego at the door is really an important rule for an editor. Because no matter what anybody says, it's the director's film, the stuff came out of the director's head, and I may be here to manifest it, and I may think that I'm able to interpret it and know better, you know, I don't even want to say that, but know something maybe that, that the director doesn't know, but in the end of the day, I still have to honor the vision of that person. And if Ridley knew that there were going to be two versions of this film, and he was going to go with that, then I really had to, I really had to honor what his wishes were. And um, with the director's cut, there was um, pretty much, I'd say virtually nothing that we disagreed about. I would be lying if I didn't say that it's hard sometimes to do things that you don't necessarily agree with or understand. And it is, but, but it is hard. It is hard, but it's part of the job. Very good pose. There's a um, there's a a line though, Lord, what is it you want of me, or something like that. That we was so low in the theatrical, we raised it. We raised the level of it, the audio level. I have been a slave, or very near to one. I will never keep one, nor suffer any to be kept. Go. It's funny, because um, considering that I was right there all the time, one of the things that I, that I like about being an editor is that I'm pretty separate from a lot of the, the filmmaking process, per se, so that I just get to look at the images and have like kind of a vis visceral reaction. So I don't necessarily know always what the motivations are. And at the same time, also, I'm kind of separated from a lot of the politics. So that does two things for me as an editor, or any, I would for anybody as an editor, is that you get to be like, you really truly get to be like an audience. And the great thing about being an audience is that you just have the experience that you have looking at the images without knowing anything about what process went into the making these big decisions. 
making these decisions, you know, big and small, like if they're put more blood in on, on the set or more guys, more guys on fire fly off the battlements or, um, even whether or not you're, you take the story and, and change it around radically by, you know, taking out big parts of the, um, of the subplot. So a lot of that happened, I don't want to say behind closed doors, but let's just say with me in absentia. And then it comes to me, and I'm given the information, and I do the best with it that I can. So again, I think the purpose of that is to try to, to maintain like kind of a more pure relationship, if you will, with the director and the editor so that, that the editor can be really as honest and candid as possible. So um, instead of, I mean, I like to use this other example that sometimes if I know how hard it was to get a shot, I might really feel bad about suggesting taking that shot out. Or if I know that such and such an actor was really a jerk, I might start not cutting him as nicely because I'm mad at him. But I'm the editors. I can't do. I'm the editor. I can't do that. I have to just see what the audience sees and make sure that I'm getting the very best. So the easiest way for me to do that is by not participating in that part of it. And the same thing with the politics. I mean, Ridley is a powerful director who's been doing what he's been doing a long time. He has the track record. He's got the experience. He's the one who is has this you know, let's call it longevity, for lack of a better word. He's made the choices that he's made. Who am I to be some idealistic schmo in the editing room and try to, or maybe naive, let's just forget idealistic. Who am I to be some naive schmo in the editing room and try to unravel what it is that's going on with me in absentia that makes these decisions happen? And... You know, again, he's he made the decision. He's going to have to live with it. He has to live with it. I mean, that's true for any director. I actually have experienced this with some of my assistants. I've seen this where they will have, like, a certain opinion about certain things, and then I'm like, well... <laughs> When you make your first movie, come back and talk to me. <laughs> so. <laughs> what we did was, in here, in general, we just kind of fleshed out the geography of, of uh, Balian's house in Jerusalem. And we show uh, the hospitaler arriving and uh, him... Uh, interacting with Almeric and uh, Balian sort of exploring the house and acquainting himself with the luxuries of of um, of this place. Uh, I think that we added the bathing scene, which again is just showing that how because he is more or less take comes to Jerusalem and takes Godfrey's place in Jerusalem. He's the the heir apparent and. All of a sudden, he's in this very luxurious, sensuous setting. And that was the thing that Ridley was trying to um, really portray, that sensuousness.
I, as an editor, think of myself in a multi-tiered way. I'm a craftsperson. That means I have a technical skill. I'm a business person because, of course, I need to earn, earn a living. And I want to be participating in creating product that does generate income for the people who, who are putting their money where their mouth is. But I am an artist. And as a collaborator, I'm an artist. So because I have only my measly 24 hours a day that I get to live my life, I want to do it with as much integrity and, and appreciation for the material that I'm working on as possible. I, have I put a lot into it, so I have to believe in what I'm putting it into, and I cannot let that enthusiasm flag because there are detractors or people who are not necessarily as enthused by the material as I am. Thank you for the dream. This is not Gladiator 2. It's not one man's struggle, triumph over adversity. It's one man as part of a very, very rich and complex tapestry who does the right thing as much as possible, and that doing the right thing has, has its upsides and its downsides. It's far more based in reality. I mean, even though, what I, I mean, one of the big triumphs of Gladiator, of course, is that the film ends in a tragedy with Maximus having to give up his life in order to rid Rome of Commodus. So there is an exchange. It's like chess. You lose a good man to get rid of a bad man. So that's the narrative structure of Gladiator. This film, Kingdom of Heaven, being based on history and, and an attempt at, at a deeper sense of reality is much more complex, and in that sense, the characters are more flawed. And if we're talking about being in the era of celebrity, people are going to want to go see the film because it's from the director of Gladiator. If you liked Gladiator, you'll like this film. Well, yes, that is sending a mixed message. It's really if you like Ridley Scott's films and if you appreciate that Ridley Scott is a genre buster. That's what he does. He is a genre buster. He takes a genre, he turns it inside out, upside down, and backwards, and he says, you thought you didn't like... Let's just go back to Gladiator. You thought you didn't like sword and sandal films. We'll take a look at this one. You thought you didn't like horror films. We'll take a look at Hannibal. You thought you didn't like war films. We'll have a look here at Black Hawk Down. You thought you didn't like quirky comedies. We'll take a look here at Matchstick Men. Well, you thought you didn't like historical epics. Have a look at Kingdom of Heaven. He's not taking the outline of a historical epic, filling in the blanks, and serving it up as the same old warmed-over dish. He's taking the historical epic, and he's embellishing and enriching the tapestry and asking, you know, asking a lot of a viewer to go there. He's always endeavoring to do something new, something different, something unexpected. It's funny, that title, Office of the Marshal of Jerusalem, I should have moved it before. I don't even know why. I sh it was funny because I think that's where it was scripted to be, but ultimately it belonged a little bit later because I think it, you, it was so far separated from Tiberius that you didn't know right away that he was the Marshal of Jerusalem. So for the director's cut, we moved that title to the shot of... Um, Balian and the and the hospitaller crossing the courtyard into the office. Bones 
And then we also added back the end of the scene after Reynald has made, uh, after Tiberius has accused uh, Reynald of having done a, an attack on a caravan, we added back the merchant uh, complaining to Tiberius as to um, why he lets Reynald go. And we showed Tiberius paying the merchant off. And I thought that this was, again, a good backstory to kind of flesh out the fact that that uh, Tiberius is someone who's trying to resolve grievances and that the city has a certain amount of money to pay off angry or wronged merchants. It just gives a, a, a more fleshed-out picture of the politics of the time. This is such a beautiful set. I love the way it's been shot, and I love all the detail in the tiles and the shadows and the light. I mean, it's really stunning. I definitely find myself holding on, wanting to hold on it. And, you know, that's part of the dialogue that I have with Ridley about what we're, what we're looking at. And I hold in my mind the, as I have said, wanting to maintain a naive point of view. And what I mean by that is wanting to feel like I am an audience member, that I try to hold in my mind the way that I felt sitting in my seat in the theater for dailies. So there were times in dailies where the images that I was looking at, I really kind of felt kind of pressed back into my chair, sort of with awe. And it didn't just happen once or twice. It happened a lot. And I would say maybe even my breath was taken away by the stunning beauty of a lot of the images. And maybe even that I was almost felt like, I mean, it's, it's almost like ecstasy over, over something that's incredibly beautiful. So yes, you would want to try to present that to the audience as much as possible. Now, you know, it's kind of rarefied air. I also have to take that into consideration, the rarefied air of being in, in dailies because you're getting to see something very long and for a long time. I mean, the, the interesting thing um, was that um, Ridley referenced Andrei Rubloff a lot, and there is a very languid pace to that film that would allow you to really look at the images. And I think that he was shooting with that in mind because there's a pace and there's sort of, sort of rhythm to the dialogue that is not necessarily what we consider like kind of the normal rhythm of, of modern dialogue, which is kind of quippy. So he was directing, I believe he was directing with that in mind in order to sort of allow this breath this time to take the images in. Not as much in a scene like this, where there's really, it's a, it's a narrative kind of st uh, story dialogue scene that just needs to kind of clip along and move forward. But in some of the other scenes, I'll talk about them as they come up. I think the scene with the king is one of those. The scene, because there's something incredibly beautiful about the the tile work and the mask and the white gown with the gold trim and the way the light 
shines on the mask and these sort of purpley lavender sheer curtains and the peacocks in the courtyard and the fountain and it's the whole the whole thing is um is so um is so much like a painting and so much is being evoked by that painterly look this morning i spoke without knowing who you were i knew who you were it's unmistakable i loved your father and I shall love you. Do you fear being with me? No. And yes. <laughs> A woman in my place has two faces. One for the world, and one which she wears in private. With you, I'll be only Sibylla. This is a great visual effect. Come forward. So yeah, the mystery of um, of the king and how he's revealed, and all the flames and the reflection on the tile and how he's so shrouded. I just love that touch too of those lavender curtains back there. I mean, I think that because of the mask and the the difficulties of being able to perform behind the mask, there was a concept that what the actual accent of the king was going to be was going to be delayed until ADR. And also because we changed some of the dialogue, which we could do quite freely behind the mask, because he was speaking behind a mask, his accent was changed. But there was something very special and kind of refined and gentle about his original performance that was never quite duplicated in ADR, which is not uncommon. A lot of times for actors, it's harder to get back into the spirit of things when they're in a dark, padded room that's, you know, padded and very dead-sounding room. So what we ended up doing for the director's cut was we used the ADR for the first third of the scene, and then when we got back into the sections of the added dialogue, which had never been ADR'd, we went back to the production. So from a certain point forward to the end of the scene, it's all original production. And there are added bits of the scene and added lines all the way through, so we wouldn't have been able to use the ADR anyway unless we brought the actor back, unless we brought Ed back. And I think he was in Prague or something at the time working on another film. So due to our time restraints, not only did we have to use the production, but we were quite happy with it. I think that when I first cut this scene and I played it back for myself, and I think I was almost in tears because... 
I love the this dialogue um, at the very end when he says, uh, uh, safeguard in particular the Jews and the Muslims, not only because it is expedient, but because it is right. Protect the helpless. And maybe one day when I'm helpless, you will come and protect me. I think I really was in tears, just that I was working on a film that had those lines of dialogue in it, and that I found the scene to be moving. So um, I felt really, really fortunate. more difficult to address. Very good. You will go to your father's house at Ibelin, your house now. And then from there, you will protect the Pilgrim Road. Safeguard in particular the Jews and the Muslims. All are welcome in Jerusalem. Not only because it's expedient, but because it is right. Protect the helpless, and then maybe one day when I... So talking about uh, beauty of shots, before we decided to take out the whole subplot of the boy, this shot, this first shot of the scene, which starts as a close-up torch or flambeau, that starts as the close-up flambeau in the hallway, um, and there's a very, you know, fascinating face that turns with the torch and beckons to Balian to follow him. And then he turns back again and, and beckons again. I was entranced by the beauty of the way this flambeau was. I think it's, it's overcranked a little bit, the shot. And I wanted to keep that little moment. I mean, these are the kind of struggles you have just the things that go back and forth between the editor and the director where I really wanted to keep the head of that shot. I just thought it was really beautiful and poetic and lyrical. And because we had this sense of an imperative to make the film shorter, really wanted me to take the front of the shot off. Well, of course, I can, I could do that, and I did do it, but I felt that it was more beautiful and lyrical to have the this headpiece of the, you know, of the flambeau, emphasizing the flambeau and the eyes. So when you're looking to try to make something shorter, you go through and you're looking anywhere for things that seem like that, for lack of a better word, can go. So, um, you know, it's all a matter of deciding what kind of a film you're making. Are you just telling, you know, telling a narrative and connecting the dots? Or are you creating something that's, that's a, a, also a, a piece of artwork. The um, impetus to really feel the world that Balian has inherited, we wanted to let him explore the house a little bit more and put himself into uh, Godfrey's shoes. At that shot I extended because I thought it was such a beautiful close-up of of, uh, of Orlando, so we extended that. I mean, he really looks fantastic in that shot, so just to let, you know, you rest your eyes on it a little more. And then we tried to flesh out the, the servant and more the geography of the courtyard and um, and how Balian might feel going through the house and... I marvel at this shot every time I see it because you get the feeling like maybe that 
is a map painting or something in the background, but that's really there. It's a practical um, location uh, with that um, building in the background. We didn't change this scene, but we added one line of dialogue, which was, um, my lord, this is a poor and dusty place. And we had to add it um, so that it could um, resonate towards the end of the film when Almeric makes a joke. After Balian offers evil into him, he says, my lord, it's a poor and dusty place. So we needed to know what that was in a reference to. I thought that the wind was amazing. I would be in my room and I would hear the wind and I'd go outside and I'd go, wow, isn't this amazing? And then I'd go back in my room and I'd go back to work and then everybody else would come in like all like raggedy and sand in their ears and their eyes and their teeth and they're just whining and complaining and uh, <laughs> I was just lucky that I wasn't personally in the wind there were a couple of things that we got some, you know, scratches in, but the way things go these days, scratches are a no-brainer. It's practically part of the dust busting that they do at the in the DI process. If something was really egregious, it was done as a visual effect. We had a few of those. And we actually had a box of film fall off of one of those little trams that takes the transports the luggage from the plane to the to the uh, carousel and kind of get run over. And even in that, we only lost a tiny, tiny bit of film. So we had very little damage from, from sand and dust. And in terms of continuity, honestly, I don't remember a single time where it became an issue. I think it's because there's mostly wind all the time. <laughs> There are a couple of times where if they didn't have wind, they had fans. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Ridley was very keen on having as much wind as possible because of what it does for hair and fabric. So if it wasn't windy, they had fans to kind of take care of that. I'm on my way to Kena. Where Jesus changed water to wine. But a better trick would be to change you to a nobleman. That should be easy. In France, a few yards of silk can make a nobleman. <laughs> I expect your hospitality. It is given. Latif!
So this scene we added back. And I mean, I think it's really great because it shows the difference sort of between the, the, the class that Baleen comes from and the class of the princess, where she makes these comments about how kind of how she's pretty much saying she can do whatever she wants because she's royalty and um, without saying it. So she says it, she says it without saying it. And I think that one thing that it does in a certain way is that it makes her slightly less sympathetic. But I think that that's good because by the time her character is all said and done, you're, you are sympathetic with her. So you give, we are giving her more of an arc by having put this scene in. Gives her more complexity and, um, and I think it's also enriches the portrait of the time and the place. And uh, and you do and you also get the sense of the seduction and the the reluctance on uh, Balian's part, which I think is good for his character, that he doesn't just you know jump in the sack with her right away. Seems years since I've seen a woman eat. Truly. I was watching you today. You've been given a patch of dirt, and it seems you will build a new Jerusalem here. Here's my land. Who would I be if I did not try to make it better? So this is interesting. These were this is a combination of shots that were second unit and main unit and these beautiful beautiful shots that were shot like kind of right at first light and then this that was shot I think it was probably after sunset to be dawn. So they at the very last minute had to do a visual effect to put the pink in the sky to kind of tie the to the location of this scene to the guys doing the prayer. And uh, I thought, thought they did a really beautiful job on that. It was like a last minute sky replacement just to tie the two things together. So we had to change this dialogue so that we she could reference her son. And, um, and then we put this back in. I always felt like there was more to the um, well building scene that I mean, again, through the imperative to make things shorter, I felt like I had kind of shortchanged the, the building the well scene. So I didn't want to open up the whole scene because it was, it, it was you know, music-driven and all that other thing, but uh, I was happy that really wanted and was happy about putting this bit back. And we were using this really nice uh, kind of lyrical piece by Baba Mal, it gives a sense of sort of contentment to Balian here out at Ebelin. And, and it's really the last sort of moment almost of contentment before the shit hits the fan when the next um, caravan attack happens. So 
I thought it was appropriate in the scope of the film, with it being longer, to have this little breath and moment of contentment. Stay here forever. This house is yours. Why do you think I'm here? And then uh, the sex scene, I extended that too, uh, more just to make it feel more like a sex scene than the other one it was more like an introduction to a sex scene. in the east between one person and another there is only light there were two drafts of the script one with the boy and one without the boy and with the boy and without the boy wasn't just the boy there were lots of attendant scenes that that kind of were attached to the boy. So it wasn't just the boy. It kind of had an impact on the overall tone of her character and um, various other things. So I had the two cuts running and I was able, you know, to kind of say, hey, pick one. Um, but but I felt, I felt um, you know, that the the more fleshed out cut always felt like it worked better for me. And it's, it, to me, one of the things that's really interesting is that our first sort of cut, not the very first cut, I mean, of course, my first cut was like five and a half hours or something, but the first cut that we were willing to show to people was about two hours and 53 minutes. And... This is three hours and eight minutes. And I thought that at 2.53, we were kind of like at the right place. And I think that having done the theatrical release actually revealed to Ridley what was needed in the director's cut. Because even when we had it at 2.53, we were still operating under that imperative to make things shorter. So what happened by doing the director's cut, by having done the shorter theatrical and by doing the director's cut after that, was that there was a certain kind of clarity that came from that to know, you know, what was really right for the, for the director's cut. There was one time when I got confused, and I think that I was and maybe even just frustrated because we were trying to take out 
all these, the things with the boy, and then we were trying to put it back, and what we were trying to do is keep the boy, but make it shorter, and all of a sudden, we had taken out a scene, the only scene, where Sibylla spoke to the king when he was alive, her brother, and we were mixing it, and Ridley and I both like looked at each other, oh my god, we can't take that scene out, we have to put that back, and we ran up into the, like, the projection booth of another theater where they had a way for us to find from an, another version of the film that they had, you know, loaded there that we could add the scene back so that we could watch it. I mean, because it would have been just pointless to watch the, the film without that scene, the scene where Sibylla says goodbye to the king. But we were just kind of, I don't know how to describe it. We were, I, I don't know, like punch drunk from trying to take things out of the film that we, we just took something out that just shouldn't have come out. So, and because we were so much up against the wall with time. And I mean, it would have never, you know, could have never happened because there's so many checks and balances, but that, that we had gotten that far to the mixing stage was kind of funny. So, but that was a one time. Yes, it can happen. It can happen that, that things go awry, but. Talk about painterly. This scene, to me, is so much like an amazing romantic painting. And there are so many frames that are like that. I mean, I would it would be really fun for anybody just to look at the dailies of this scene. It's all about the color, the 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 light, the wardrobe, there. It's a really incredibly beautiful tableau. That sort of thing. Especially in the wider shots. I have run into people who, for and I had only seen The Leopard recently. I saw it about six months ago for the first time, and I was dazzled. And it's a phenomenal film. And for quite a few people now, now I've, that I've been talking about and that I'm aware of the film, I find a whole host of people, and a lot of whom are filmmakers, that it's their favorite film, their absolute favorite film. And you think, wow, what does that mean? If you look at the numbers, and of course it made its money back somewhere in the history of the film, and so the emphasis on profit and making money back and what percentage it is is also sort of infiltrated into the public, where people are thinking, well, if something only just makes their money back in a little bit, that's not successful enough. It has to rake in like double what it cost or triple or quadruple. And people are obsessed with, it's like the culture of celebrity is also the culture of the rich. They're obsessed with that if something doesn't make what it cost, that it's a failure. And where this film has already well made more than what it costs to make and will continue to make money for the studio for eons, for ages to come now. And even in that realm, that people can criticize the film. And I'm just aching for the time when people are no longer obsessed with the relative success of one film versus another film. That's why I was so refreshed to have participated in seeing The Leopard and talking with other friends about it and other filmmakers 
and everybody talks about it just in terms of the film itself, not in terms of its relative box office or profitability, because it's not about that. It is a work of art, and works of art, even if filmmaking is a combination of, I mean, it's the ultimate merging of commerce and art, it's a work of art, and it touches people in different ways, and you cannot qualify the success or failure of a piece of art that way. It has to be based on the people who are touched by it, what it means to them. And you just let the ones who are not touched by it fall away because that is the merit of the piece of art, is the people who are touched by it. And it doesn't diminish its value by the numbers of people who were touched by it or not. But the people who are touched by it and the way in which they're touched by it and how it affects their life, maybe for the rest of their life, is the meaningful aspect of it. And the commercial part of it is actually a separate thing. Now, of course, I recognize the pragmatism involved in, in understanding and wanting to, as a filmmaker, have your product be as successful as possible. But when you put that above everything else, you're actually denying a movie going public from seeing something that is perhaps more significant. Because if you are just reaching for the profitability, you are most certainly going to be watering something down. And it's a very rare day when something is really, really successful to a very, very broad audience that it hasn't been watered down in some way in order to reach that broad audience. So if you want new ideas, if you want innovation, if you want something that's incendiary or cataclysmic or really going to get people's attention or affect somebody in a long-term way beyond their two hours or however long it is that they're sitting in the dark theater. There have to be risks, and those are artistic risks that are taken. And then how it touches those people will vary from person to person, with any luck. Thank you, but no. If we do, these people will die. We'll hold the Saracen cavalry until the king... Um, I would just say that overall, being in London and doing the visual effects in London was very helpful. If we had been in L.A. and we were doing the visual effects in London, it would have been just a lot more difficult. So we were able to go to the visual effects house pretty much every morning of the week if we wanted to. We had almost like a standing screening at 9 a.m. and or 8.30 or whenever it was, and then we would just walk a block and a half and be at the editing room. And... Um, it was very convenient. So it was also really convenient. We had the sound editors were right across the hall. The visual effects guys were right down the hall. Um, all of that um, was very convenient. This is one of the um, sections of the film that was highly storyboarded. And a lot of the shots are so much like the storyboards. It's really stunning, actually, to see how it came together. And most of this footage was shot at some speed other than 24 frames a second. Like these shots, I believe they were shot at at least 48, um, the approaching armies. And... Um, we had to do a lot of work to 
deciding like what speed we really wanted them to go because as you can see it's not all over cranked and um but it it does pretty literally follow at least the sort of the idea the concept that was laid out in the storyboards but there were there was tons and tons of material for this these shots of the colliding armies are actually practical. Uh, it's pretty amazing the way they did it with the, just the placement of the camera. This was a section that I was asked to soften up a little bit. I added some blood back, but um, I had a like kind of a more vicious um, killing of the horse that I was not, um, nobody wanted me to put that back. Ridley didn't want me to put it back. It was very visceral, the bringing of his, his horse down. But there, that blood, that's added back. There are a couple, just a few, like six or seven pieces of blood that were added back. We're in the land of no horses were hurt in this making of this film. I mean, all the horses that come down, they're uh, prosthetics. And um, they, it's really pretty amazing. They have them on these little catapults and um, they launch them. But they're so such good looking horses as, uh, as prosthetics. Uh, I had a very funny day one day I had to go to the set for something, I don't remember what, but my driver was driving me from the Berber Palace over to the set, to the um, to the studio, and as I was driving in, passing bungalows and tents and bungalows and tents and more outbuildings and bungalows and tents, and I passed one tent that was just full of prosthetic horses. So it was it was a pretty funny. There was another bungalow that was just filled with, uh, you know, phony rock, and another tent that was just filled with. I mean, but just the, and and they weren't just prosthetic horses; they were prosthetic downed horses. So it's like these horses, like here, that are on the ground here. Those kind of horses. You may go into Karak, but you will die there. My master is here. Okay, this scene... <laughs> this scene was one of these... The scenes, for whatever reason, we shot much better material for the army of Jerusalem approaching than we did for the for Saladin's army and because I had so much other stuff to do for whatever reason I put off cutting this and designing the approaching um, Saracens 
So these, a lot of these shots, these particular shots were done at the last minute. And the basis of the Jerusalem army approaching, the practical plates were just much, much, it might have just been a matter of the sun that day. There was, it was just much, much, much more beautiful. Like this, even though it's a visual effect shot, as a practical shot, it's incredible and it's beautiful. And the very nature of the scene is sort of like a, a checkerboard. You want to have a shot of one side, then the other side, and one side, and then the other side. And you want to have the shots have sort of a parallel. But I didn't just didn't really have the, the material, or it wasn't as apparent that I had the material. And uh, the actual making of the visual effects of those were was more complicated because we were, had to use more different elements or more elements. But ultimately, I was very happy with the way the scene came together. I pray you retire on home to Damascus. There was one performance by Saladin. I mean, he's so great. One performance, they shot it once. And then they shot it again, like three or four weeks later, with a, with better light. And just in those three weeks, whatever had happened, that where he had come more into his understanding of the of the character, the the reshoot, which doesn't always happen, but the reshoot was much much more powerful, and he had so much more presence. Strangely, I used all of the reshoot. He's really much more uh, commanding. But one take of one line, this one is from the first shoot because there was a sort of a shift where he becomes kind of gentler and more understanding when he offers to send the physicians. That was a rehearsal day and they shot anyway and all of the um, soldiers behind the king are wearing Saracen helmets. If you go back and look at it, you can see they all have the little points on the top of the helmets and everything. So that's like one of those things that, that'll show up on somebody's website saying, blooper, <laughs> they're wearing the wrong helmets. This is the era of the critic. Part of it has to do with these kind of DVD things and reality programming and people given view into the the business and the seamy underside <laughs> of uh, of filmmaking and what goes into making deals and the preview process and the internet, people having a forum to express their opinions. And it's also an extension of the Andy Warhol syndrome, 15 minutes of fame, which now can sometimes be 15 words of fame on the Internet in, in the form of a, um, a bulletin board or a website. So it is an extension of that, of the me generation, the fascination with celebrity, and the urge to dethrone a king or dethrone a celebrity is what I mean by that when someone is... The celebrities have become kings, and the celebrities are the films, the people that make them, the stars, and anybody who is has been put up on a pedestal is really, really putting themselves in harm's way when it comes to the potential criticism for what they do. That's the way it is.
That was a reshoot, this shot. Not really a reshoot. It's funny, sometimes they they would shoot the scene and then if there was something, I mean, it's sort of obvious, I suppose, because I was there and I was cutting, if something was missing, then I could ask for it, they could go back and get it because we had the sets, the sets were ours, we owned it for three months. So they were so pressed sometimes for time that they would finish out a scene and even if they thought they needed something else, rather than go back and keep shooting the next day, they would move on to the next scene. And then, you know, a week later when I had cut it, then Ridley could come in and look at it and I would give my requests and he'd say, well, no, do it this way. Or he would say, oh, you're right, we need that. So they would schedule it and shoot it. So we added uh, back the scathing looks between Guy and Balian and Sibylla, just for obvious reasons, to heighten the tension between the three of them. I think it even gives you the feeling that Guy knows something's going on.
Well, the funny thing about that shot that we just passed, you probably heard that from Wes. It was originally a shot that was taken from the scene of Balian and his men riding up to the caravan attack, the aftermath of the caravan attack. And then we had to change that to be uh, Saracens. Mainly we did that by changing the color of the cloaks. And... Um, and that particular take was a funny one because we picked it because the light was so beautiful, but it also happened to have a rider falling off of his horse in it. So we had to clean that out. This scene is really interesting because it's the one where the mullah is introduced and it kind of introduces the kind of conflicts that Saladin has to uh, deal with where he he has a religious fanatic urging him on to to be more warlike and Saladin is is explaining his stand about why he does what he does and sort of he reveals his uh, acumen as a political and war strategist so that's great and and it was nice to extend the end to fill in some more story about how his lieutenant Imad confirms his understanding of the situation and that he knows that the that that the balance of power right now is very fragile and that when King Baldwin dies things are going to change. Don't forget. So it was great to be able to add that material back. Again, it's it's just a richer presentation of the of the narrative. All of the performances in this scene are really strong, and I think this is a great scene for revealing the conflict and potentially the inner conflict of Saladin. Now that we added back the little piece on the end of this scene at the end at the um, Karak courtyard after the battle, where Guy clocks Balian and Sibylla's connection, that scene has a lot more weight, I think. Because you have you see Guy looking at Balian not just with irritation that he's being heralded as a war hero or a or a valiant knight, but you see that Guy is aware of the connection between Balian and Sibylla. These two scenes, or this, it's really one scene. This scene we added back in partly just for its pageantry of the doctors he heading into King Baldwin's chambers and then to show Guy in it that he's a good swordsman and uh, that he's lurking in the shadows. And this scene of Reynald, again, is also added back for color to show what a rascal Reynald is, trotting around his cell, shouting his name and being amused by the echo and then playing with the echo and not seeming to care at all that he's in jail. So it's good character development for Reynald. This scene with Baldwin, I was very keen on putting this one back because we don't see much of the physical damage of Baldwin's leprosy. And because soon there's going to be a scene where Sibylla has to touch Baldwin's bandaged hand, I thought if you saw the hand and the pussy, bloody mass of the, of the eaten flesh, it would give more weight to 
her gesture towards touching his bandaged hand in his bed. It also kind of defines the patriarch as uh, someone who's kind of playing lip service and that Baldwin is, is aware of the religious and political corruption. It's really key to fleshing out Baldwin's character because where everyone sees this as a these uh, historical episodes as religious wars when in fact there was a lot more at stake. When Guy crosses to the door, we're hoping that you think, oh shit, now he's going to go for Sibylla and he's there's going to be some fallout over his discovery that perhaps she and Balin have got something going on. And uh, we tried to cut it in such a way so that to delay seeing clearly that it's, in fact, not Sibylla, but her maid. And so since people are calling this a rape scene, it, it was depicted as a rape scene in the script, but Ridley chose to shoot it as a a willing tryst between these two people. And what I like about it is that it certainly is the case. Historically, plenty of people had relationships with their their servants, and to me it's just a richer, much more realistic portrayal of the time. And he was frustrated, obviously, by learning about Sibylla and Balian's thing, and he just goes to the next uh, available source to express himself. This scene is tricky as to why it would be in or out. Uh, in the theatrical release, there's very little of showing a growing relationship between Sibylla and Balian. They basically have one period when they're at Ebelin, and then it goes straight from their, you know, salad days, so to speak, to the deterioration of the relationship. And uh, adding in more development, then when uh, the the writing shot, you see the turkey poles. So you see that she's doing this in the early light of morning. So she is being secretive. So that's, I think, again, a good thing that a princess can go around and need to be secretive. I love the scene. I think that um, Ava looks ravishing in the scene. And what I one of the things that I like about it, she has like almost kind of a Spanish look in the way they've done her hair and makeup. And what is beautiful about it is that it gives you the feeling of a woman who has just come from a, a tryst. She looks like, oh, she's been having sex all night and her cheeks are all flushed and she just looks ravishing. And then Guy kneeling by the boy and... His comment, always surround your knights with foot soldiers. It's a thrown-off line of dialogue that is an incredible insight to the character of Guy. And then we learn so much in terms of how he relates to Sibylla and his vulnerability, because you can see very clearly that he's hurt by her rebuking of him. So, again, it's both character development and narrative information, and you recognize that Guy is a really threatening guy and that the balance of power is so delicate 
and that Guy, probably because he has the control of the Templars, and that's kind of an interesting revelation, because we have just seen Balian be very powerful with his 50 Ebelin knights and getting away with kind of a miracle at Karak. But in fact, Guy is more powerful relative to just muscle. And if you recognize that, then you see that there could be a coup at any time. Then it's good to know that the balance of power is as delicate as it is. And so this scene, to me, it takes on a whole different weight, having added those other scenes, because there's an, a kind of a more extreme altruism on Balian's part because we know how much more threatening Guy is, but we also know that the deal with Sibylla is not sealed. There's actually a fissure or a crack in their relationship in that he doesn't want to be wed to somebody who is a, a queen or somebody wielding all that power. And it makes a lot more sense that he can muster up the comment that he's not willing to have Guy killed in his name so that he can take over the position of Sibylla's husband. So I think it makes this scene a lot more complex. We know that Guy is a bit of a terror. It's more understandable why Balian is not willing to uh, step into that role. Balian is relatively new to the world of being a knight, and... Of course he's new to the world of being involved with a princess and being involved with kings and queens and princes and all of that. He came from a small village. And that one could say, well, there are similar structures there, but the stakes are not as high. And he also learned about being a knight from his father who said, protect the helpless and do what is right and that what is right you'll know from here and here, your head and your heart. So he's weighing a lot of things, and he witnesses a certain kind of power hunger from Sibylla that he has chosen not to participate in. Let's put it that way. So in this scene, we added this dialogue as well, which is where she reveals to Balian that if Guy gets killed, it would be orchestrated by her, not by anybody else. And that also is an awakening, a further awakening to Balian of how important it is to Sibylla to maintain control over Jerusalem and to maintain her position of power. So again, I think it's a more complex problem. It's a more complex conflict. It's not just hey, stay with me and we'll all live happily ever after. I think that there was, there was a worry that if she goes as far as she does, which is to confess her, um, uh, to confess her kind of hunger for power to Balian, and then to go so far as she does, which is to kill the boy, can she ever be redeemed enough for them to be together at the end? But I think that Ridley would maintain that Killing the boy is not um, something that makes her go down in your estimation, but it actually kind of makes her go up in a certain way because you recognize that she's setting him free from a life of 
abject misery as a as a um a leper so it's the thing that destroys her she actually destroys herself by destroying the boy in order to be like the phoenix that rises out of the fire so it's sort of that idea that you have to strip yourself down to nothing before you can be remade and because she does that then that's what allows Balian to return to her at the end and that stripping herself down to nothing includes having killed the boy herself being destroyed by that and then her own sort of personal salvation Guy and Reynald who are supposed to be cohorts that Reynald doesn't trust Guy enough to go ahead and eat the chicken he makes him eat some first to test to see if it's poisoned and we also see how, I mean, we had this in the theatrical cut anyway, but we see how Reynald plants these seeds of doubt and paranoia into Guy about Balian. Now, all of these scenes that we had to put back in that are strictly just engaged with the boy story, it's easy to say that, well, it's just about the boy story. But in fact, it's a pity to not have had this scene in regardless of the boy because it shows the torment that Sibylla experiences as a result of her brother having leprosy. And it also shows that she hasn't seen him or doesn't look at him or doesn't interact with him very often. And I think that's also really an important detail that people could be living in the same household and not see each other or look at each other or talk to each other. And naturally, this is a big moment because having heard from the king that when he was young, the fact that he could feel no pain was the way that they discovered that he didn't, that he uh, had leprosy. So that's just telling the audience, nobody else. The boy king is sitting there, doesn't feel pain because of the fire. And this shot was one of, to me, when I was watching dailies, was one of the most beautiful shots in the film. There was something fantastic, and I don't know who and how the decision was made about over-cranking Sibylla. It was over-cranked as she was approaching, and then it cranked down to 24 frames a second as she got to the bed. And there was something really amazing and beautiful about her flowing dress and gown and the way the light was hitting in the courtyard and how the doctors got up from the bed and left and their robes flowing and billowing and it was a certain kind of alchemy that just happens by all of the people working together with Ridley and the design and the camera work and the choice to overcrank it that I thought was really spectacular. And there were times during the theatrical cut that we were considering taking it out and um, we finally left it in. I'm really happy. And this scene in general, I feel, is a very potent scene emotionally and for the director's cut, we kind of gave more breath to these performances because there's so much going on in the eyes and it's all about the eyes. We have one character wearing a mask, so it has to be about the eyes. And it shows a real depth of love and pain and compassion between these two people. 
and I think it's really critical to have given it as much weight as we could, again, for the benefit of Sibylla's character, so that we know how deeply she feels for her brother and how deeply she sort of suffers at the thought of him having lived his life as a leper. Well, the other thing is that they talk about beauty, and he says she's beautiful. She says he's beautiful. You were a beautiful boy. You've always been beautiful. And there is this, a sort of obsession with beauty. And we know that in this time, there was an obsession with beauty. And so it also adds more credence to why she would be so distraught by her son, her beautiful, very, very beautiful son being potentially being ravaged by leprosy. So all of that dialogue isn't just them passing pleasantries. We're letting the audience in on the obsession of that time, which was with beauty, to a very high level. And then we, we made a little change here just so that she could add in the dialogue about the sun. So if my son has your nights, you have your wife. So here is where she makes the bargain. She knows that Balian is not going to go with her other plan, and she knows that Baldwin is going to die. So she has to have somebody that can wield the physical power. We were very careful at the end of that scene to show Guy's appreciation of Sibylla, that in fact he really does love her, not to just make it feel like a deal. As Ridley always does, he wants the frame to have life. And things don't ever match from angle to angle. Because like those rose petals on the floor, they aren't on in every take. But it doesn't really matter because he creates, what he's doing is creating this life. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion back and forth between us as to where we should reveal you know, what's under the mask. I was very, very happy that we were able to put this back where she puts the mask back on and where she kind of tucks him in because it shows a certain kind of tenderness even in his absence that she felt for him. Aside from the majesty of this scene, which is so beautiful and showing all these very cool costumes, What's really great is to see this tiny little boy being given this power and how sort of wrong it feels to just take this boy because of his lineage and handing him the keys to the city. I love this scene. It's almost as, you almost don't want to talk through it because it's so beautiful. It's kind of interesting because we definitely know that Balian is out there kind of questioning his existence. So it's a very existential scene. And there was frustration in terms of a narrative thrust as to why he is just sitting out there in the desert. And... For anybody who has ever had an internal struggle, I think you understand 
fully why he's sitting out there in the desert. He's trying to figure out how he feels about everything. And the Hospitaller has functioned and continues to function in this scene as the voice of question and reason. He provides Balian with with certain kind of signposts and mechanisms to question and figure out answers to things. The other thing that was really key was that we have Balian looking long enough towards the Hospitaller to see him walk far enough away that we can see that there's nothing out there and that we see the bush ignite on camera so that we know that it ignited without someone having thrown a rock and given enough of a beat for Balian to see clearly that the Hospitaller is gone and there's no place that he could have gone. And that's why we give all those beats just to make it clear that he virtually disappeared. So he kind of appears out of nowhere, and I don't think you question that, which is great. And obviously at the end, he disappears as well, and that's when you kind of go, oh, oh, it has the oh factor. This is a great scene because it shows the manipulation of Sibylla over the boy by virtue of the fact that the boy is just doing whatever she says, but it also shows, I mean, which he must, he's six or seven years old, or however old he was at this time, and it also shows the attempt of the patriarch to manipulate Sibylla. So again, the kind of the internal struggles, um, something is rotten in Denmark moment. It's not all just hunky-dory, that within the four walls of the palace, there is uh, internal conflict. And then you see where, when you see the drops of wax fall on the boy's hand and he doesn't flinch, that's where Sibylla learns that he probably or possibly has leprosy. And then you see her looking at the patriarch, wondering if he saw that as well. Again, these are just cinematic beats where we're telling the story entirely without dialogue, and it's so gratifying to get the material and be able to put it together, and it's so potent. That last shot of her on the up against the wall, I happened to be on the set that day, so maybe I was paying more attention to the dailies, but it was one of those things. I mean, these are very tough moments for actresses, having to go this deep for this kind of emotion and they didn't have a slate at the beginning of the scene because they didn't want to disrupt her acting thing you know which I completely understand and I respect they didn't want to disrupt her, her state of mind that she was putting herself in to go to that place for that moment in that scene and after Ridley called cut they ran in with a slate and she was leaning up against the wall looking completely wrecked and ragged from having had to go emotionally to the place where she was going for the scene and they tried to clap the slate right in front of her face it was torture for me as the editor to watch it because I was tortured that it was so insensitive they came right up in front of her face and clapped the slate and not gently like really loud and then the camera operator said oh I missed that and then they did it again and then they said, no, no, do it one more time. And then they did it for the third time. It had to be six inches away from her face while tears were streaming down her face. And I felt 
so really felt for her with the cameras on her and then she was like kind of wipe it away and and on the the film to see it I just thought wow acting's really hard <laughs> so it's not just that you have to you know really drop your defenses for just for the camera and to do it but then you have to also it goes on <laughs> you know it's not it doesn't stop when the editor cuts to the end of the shot it goes on and i think that the script supervisor anna when when they were shooting these takes where she pours the poison in his ear she was pouring tears also and to a large degree this is of course due to ava's amazing performance I cried watching the dailies. I cried. What I find interesting for me sometimes, it doesn't always happen, but that I can cry or feel or experience a film that I've edited as though I'm seeing it for the first time. It's really gratifying when that happens because I have to be a little bit separated from the material or detached from the material in, in order to edit it. Like a scene like this with the amount of violence... I'm one of those lily livers who goes to the theater and when a movie goes into a violent section, I have to close my eyes or turn away. And that's not especially conducive to being able to edit violent material. But in fact, I think that it's that level of naivete that I have worked hard to maintain that allows me as an editor to view material objectively and like a first-time viewer as often as possible. I don't want to become numb to narrative and to the power of juxtaposed images. Because this is all about juxtaposed images. I mean, yes, there's a take where Balian gets up with a rock and runs at a guy and hits him, but if you're watching that unedited, it doesn't have the same kind of visceral punch that it does when it's cut together. So to edit something like this, I have to pick all of those pieces and cut it together, and then if it makes me flinch and feel like turning away... I've sort of <laughs> achieved what I'm trying to achieve. It's like being two people. It's like being schizophrenic. I mean, I have to do my work, and then I have to step out of my body or step into my other body and be a viewer and see how it makes me feel. The Templars killed Bailey. Yeah. That line, it used to be, have the Templars removed your problem, but we wanted to make sure that it was clear that the um, attack at the palm tree, at the watering hole, was orchestrated by Guy. And so Guy is trying to get rid of Balian to make sure that he does, he's not a fly in the ointment later. But he didn't succeed in doing that. So here, the um, impetus between Ridley and Ava was that she was, even though she's crowning Guy, she's not especially happy about it. And I love that moment when Guy kind of lifts his head into the crown. You know how much he wants to be king. And you see Tiberius hesitating to say, God save the king. So you know that he's not happy about Guy having been crowned. Ridley toyed a lot with this scene as to what it really meant and how far to go with the visual effects in terms of how we make the Hospitaller look heavenly or not and we even toyed with this idea of when his finger touched his forehead putting a little spark or a little bit of flame as though he's passing some life force into Balian. We ended up simplifying it because we didn't want it to be too um, hammer over the head 
And in, in this scene, we had different variations of and levels of gruesomeness on that beheading scene. Plus, we had a little shot of one of the Templars raping one of the women. And we took that out in the theatrical and we decided not to put it back in in the director's cut because it just felt so gratuitous. But this is a really interesting example of what the difference is in cinematic terms of showing one shot or not. And that one shot where it's spelled out explicitly, oh, we're seeing a rape, he's looking at it, he goes to this woman and rips her veil down, you know what's going to happen. This way, there's a lot more left to the imagination, and oftentimes the imagination is far worse than anything that you can show on screen. And especially since we're telegraphing by all sorts of other means that something horrible is going to happen. So it does, but we don't know what it is, and we never really know, and that's okay. I think it's a good thing for an audience because it, it increases an engagement factor. ...demands the return of his sister's body, the heads of those responsible and the surrender of Jerusalem. I mean, to behead or not to behead? That is the question. Because of when we were making our movie and it happened to coincide with the beheadings that were happening in Iraq, the question about putting in the beheadings was just a question of sensitivity to the families of the people who had been beheaded in Iraq. So we just made a choice call it a political choice rather than, not a political, but like just say a choice to just to not, not to rub salt in the wounds of the families of the people who had been beheaded. Now, at any other time in movie making history, if we hadn't had a contemporary example of it, it probably wouldn't be questioned because this is a film about the Crusades. It's about that time. It's all meant to be treated with a very even and um, true hand. We're not trying to be revisionist. We're not trying to be sensationalistic. And it's not even something like Troy, where there was a beheading in Troy that I saw, where Brad Pitt swings his sword around and a head like kind of pops off, where you actually can see the head like kind of pop in the air and, and go off. And Troy was a much more cartoony representation of this era, or not even this era. When was it? Like twice as long ago as this is. But... It was still not in design and performance and everything. It wasn't as realistic. So we felt, from a realistic point of view, this is what people did. And Ridley wanted to be as realistic and true to the time as possible, so the beheading was a natural. On top of all that, I, as an editor, I love the beheading because it packs a lot of punch. It's very visceral and hideous to have somebody be stabbed with a small knife in the throat, but... It's even more shattering to have the beheading. And it completes the picture of what would have happened. And the vulnerability of the messenger and the terror on his face, it's just part of a cinematic experience that I felt I was sad to be cheating the audience of not giving them that experience. So I'm grateful that we were able to put it back in the director's cut. So the same kind of character development is at play when um, Guy is making his, his, uh, his speech to the troops, trying to pump them up for the battle to come. 
his speech climaxes with I am the king, which all the air is taken out of that by the arrival of Balian, much to his surprise and dismay because he thought that he had had Balian killed. So he's dismayed and deflated by the arrival of Balian because Balian is the single fly in the ointment that he has not been able to deal with thus far. This scene, there was a whole lot more dialogue and a whole lot more exposition. And because of where it falls in the film, we we really wanted to use it for uh, its narrative exposition and the show of pageantry. I mean, I think these are some of the most amazing shots because they're all practical. There are no visual effects here at all. They just had this amazing lineup of soldiers walking behind them and and it feels so very very real and gritty and tragic and all of that but the real narrative purpose of this scene is to bring Balian back into the story to let him know what has happened since he's been gone because we figured there was no other way that he would know that Sibylla had killed the boy that Guy was king that Baldwin had died and basically an entire shift of power happened while Balian was gone and he is back here to do his job as marshal. I mean, even though um, Tiberius's state of mind is starting to flag. So basically, when we reinstated the story of the boy for the director's cut, we also had to reinstate the information that the boy had been killed and that Sibylla had, as a result, made Gee King. So it was really just adding that one little bit of information. Plus, this was one of those practical shots, again, that when I watched this particular shot in dailies, it took my breath away to see it. And then I got my breath taken away for a second time when the second battalion entered the frame. I think that this scene actually has a lot more meaning, frankly. It's much more powerful once you know why she's in the crypt. Because in the theatrical release, you think she's in there just because she feels bad about having crowned Guy. But now you know it's that she's a destroyed woman because she's had to uh, euthanize her son. She's lost everything and she's, she's basically destroyed now. This was another one of those shots, this shot of the of uh, Saladin's army leaving Hattin. It's a practical shot, and in dailies, I, it took my breath away. I was watching dailies, and I was pressed back into my seat, just agog. It was so beautiful. It was all practical. Those are all real soldiers, not, not the wide shots, but... This shot, this is all, it started on those shields. This is, those are jump cuts all in one shot. But it was a shot that lasted like three minutes long. It's a crane shot, obviously. That started on those shields. The soldiers go past, raking close past the camera. And then the camera craned up. And I was, it was staggering to me. And I was there. 
how beautiful it was and how much trouble they went to to do all those things practically. This is another shot that was potentially on the chopping block several times and we struggled with it. And during dailies, I was almost in tears because we had about five or six takes of this. I was in tears over the beauty and the tragedy. It was so incredibly beautiful. This scenario and the painterly quality and the colors and the wardrobe. And I felt like I was watching a canvas come to life. Yet it's so incredibly, narratively, it's obviously tragic. These dead soldiers in the foreground, the uh, unseemly behavior of, of the Saracens, you know, the spoils of war, the gathering up of the stuff, the dragging off of the prisoners, the whole thing. I mean, it's so tragic. This scene is, it's really bizarre. It's almost exactly as I cut it the very first time from dailies. Very few changes made. There was another one of those scenes where I had to like run back to the editing room to cut it because I was so excited by the material. And the, this choice to stay close until we revealed Reynald and then we see the, the geography, the layout of the tent and that they have Reynald and Guy as prisoners and Saladin's treatment of them, Saladin's relationship to them as as prisoners. Then I love these shots of the mullah urging him to do his bidding and Saladin's choice of how he cut his throat. I added a couple more shots of the blood in this, uh, in the director's cut, I have to confess. Again, this is one of those contrast scenes where you had one character do the same action one way and the other character do it a different way. So it's the exact same action, but the scene itself has a different impact. And the other thing Ridley was really reaching for was to show Reynald in this scene being almost submissive to Saladin because Ridley wanted to portray Reynald as a big kid, as I said, and reference Lord of the Flies kind of idea, that he's just out of control and he's a kid who needs to be punished. So he's almost taking with glee the beheading. So he looks almost romantically at Saladin when he is about to behead him. And there was a lot of question about why the mullah looks so excited at this beheading. And I think that, again... Ridley's impetus was that this beheading he knew was very important to the mullah because it would be the catalyst that would kind of begin the all-out war. And so the mullah is happy about the beheading for that reason. It's not the beheading itself. It's the residual impact of the beheading that is good for the mullah and his religious fanatic goals. Debashi, who was our... Islamic consultant was very upset about having Saladin himself do the beheading of Reynald. He was not in accord with the thought that we would have Saladin do the beheading of Reynald. And he said that historically he would have had somebody else do it. He wouldn't have done it himself. Now, I don't know, honestly, historically, whether that's true or not. 
if that's true, then I would have to say that this is just plain old cinematic license because we have ruler on one side do a beheading, we have to have the ruler on the other side do a beheading. I think Tiberius is great in this scene because it shows what level of idealism he had and that now he's sort of just destroyed by by what's happening in Jerusalem and I feel like it's perfectly valid for him to be taking off. I don't feel particularly like he's a coward. I feel like he sees, it's like abandoned ship. He sees that what's happening, the ship is going down. So he's like saving his own men, maybe his own hide and his own men. And I think that Balian, you know, historically as he did, that he had to kind of leap into into action uh, I think it's good for him to have been left alone without Tiberius because it makes him a stronger character at this point. I don't really know what happened to Tiberius, if that's accurate or not. I think Tiberius actually was an amalgamation of three or four characters. But it's good to show um finally now we've heard so much talk and well we saw him at the well building scene about Balian's engineering skills that um that he is coming up with the plan and the thing with the rocks is really great in terms of him figuring out how far to launch the ballista but so what I was going to say about the action adventure sword and sandal concept and what the difference is between the director's cut and the theatrical release is that in the theatrical release there is like kind of I can't say exactly that it's top heavy but the focus on the battle is it's weighted towards the focus on the battle because in terms of screen time not just the battle but the battles the cumulative battles is weighted towards that because the percentage of the screen time is is leaning towards towards that whereas with the director's cut the backstory and the political intrigue is actually more front and center and yes the battles are important but they feel more balanced in terms of how they play in the overall length of the film in the director's cut because there's a longer build up there's more backstory the intrigue about the battles themselves is is more fleshed out During the shooting, there were a couple of meetings right before and during the shooting of the siege, which took a long time. It wasn't something that was just done over a few days. I mean, they kept going back to it and shooting more, and that was over several weeks. And it evolved during shooting. So most of this was coming out of Ridley's brain, and it wasn't clearly scripted. By clearly scripted, I mean the beats weren't clearly scripted. So Ridley was doing his shooting days, and then he was having dailies where, I mean, and he was the biggest enthusiast in the room, I have to say. I was continuously impressed by how enthused he was about the dailies and that he would sometimes stay and watch dailies till 1 in the morning. And then I know that he was getting up at like 4 and 5 in the morning and drawing more storyboards and reworking in his mind what the siege was going to be. And those things were kind of evolving during shooting. 
And what ended up actually getting shot kept evolving and what it meant. And there was some question as to how long the siege lasted. And in terms of how long I was cutting it, I mean, I was cutting it for ages. I was cutting it while I was on location. I was cutting it when we came back. And I was cutting it up until the very end. It didn't really lock into place the siege probably until about two months, let's say, before we finished the film. So that means that I was cutting it from April of 04 through January of 05. And what I mean by cutting it is that, you know, obviously I had to cut it together and have it make sense, but revising it and, and reworking like what its rhythm and purpose was going to be. There was a lot of emphasis being put on how violent to make it, how many burning people to show, and how much blood to show. And just because I'm not a blood lover, but because I think that the way the blood was shot in this film is so beautiful, I definitely was going for going for the blood when I first cut it. And then I took my focus away from the blood and went more into the action and the arc, finally. So it also was much, much longer at the beginning. This scene, the, the nighting scene, we call it, was another one of those scenes I couldn't wait to cut because I thought Orlando was so good. And this is a kind of a story where the characters, individual characters, set upon a bigger backdrop. The, the personal drama on a larger backdrop gives more weight to the larger struggle. That's what the nighting scene is. You've got Balian taking little people and making them feel important. Not just feel important, actually be important. And I think it's a really strong scene because you've just had this big Henry V speech from the battlement, but all of the faces in the crowd are not people that we know. The only person, obviously, in the crowd that we know is Balian. So even though it's an important speech... It doesn't have the same emotional weight as the nighting scene does because the nighting scene, it just brings it down to a more individual level and something that you can relate to. It's like a disaster movie. You could have an incredible disaster movie. If there are no characters that you know or care about, the whole disaster is kind of boring. So you need to have these individuals in, a, in any kind of story like this of these large scale, large proportion where you're caring about some individuals. So, I mean, we tried to work that in into the speech on the battlement, but it turned out to be actually more present in this scene. And it starts with Balian having the antagonism from the patriarch. And then Balian kind of shows who he is by empowering the villagers in front of the patriarch who says, we have no knights. And it's a very passionate and emotional speech that Balian gives when he knights everybody and then it culminates with him seeing the gravedigger, who was so-called a nobody back in France, and now he becomes even more of a somebody because he's a crusader. He came down to the Holy Land. He left behind his humble roots, which was really, you know, that of a of a kind of a broken man in France. And now he's being knighted by Balian, and Balian is telling him and charging him with his duty to not just to rise at night, but really to come into his own. And that's to me, is a really great moment. So it's fantastic that we were able to put the, the beat back with the gravedigger because I think it just gives a lot more weight to this scene.
not just weight. It gives it more purpose narratively. I think that there are a lot of people who are moved to tears over this scene because it's all about the individual, uh, not just the individual. It's the individual working in concert with others. So you, you're being told and asked, told that you can be something. You know, I can be a somebody kind of as the idea. You're being told that, and then you're going to join forces with other people. So there's like strength for the individual and strength in, in, in collaboration and, or people working in concert with each other. Okay, so back to the, um, to the, the siege. When we were first cutting it, Ridley, because he had gone to all the trouble to really work out the physical mechanics of how the war itself was waged. I extended that shot. <laughs> I liked, I loved the shot so much. Because he had gone to all the trouble, and by the way, all of those fireballs, those are all practical. It's pretty amazing. Now, obviously, that's a visual effect, but the actual balls themselves, once they hit the ground and come in, are real fireballs. And uh, I have to say, when I saw the dailies, I was flabbergasted. I was completely impressed. So what Ridley and the main unit were focusing on were the big wide shots, which were always shot with seven cameras. And what the second unit was focusing on were all of the details that were the glue for me to put it all together. So even on the first night, the nighttime blitz, they shot all this stuff first unit that was really wide and showed the Saracens in relationship to Jerusalem and the wall and the background, but I had no details at all. So what the second unit did was do like close-ups of the Saracen's hammer hitting the pin to launch a fireball, close-up of a fireball going down the chute, close-up of Saracen soldiers shouting orders, all of that kind of stuff that were details that I used as glue to create some dynamics and bring all the pieces together into a more um, a seamless piece. Maybe seamless is the wrong word because, of course, you're seeing all the cuts. It's not like I'm... But, it, but I think that, the cre that it helps to create the energy of the mechanism of what the people are doing. The, the well-orchestrated, well-oiled machine is what we were trying to portray. So we needed all those little details in order to get that across. That people may shout orders, something happens, and there's this cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, over and over again. And that was, um, that was the, the real goal of the way that the cutting was done, was to give a constant sense of cause and effect. Well, I think that Ridley had always anticipated that there was going to be a lot of second unit shooting. The problem was that, um, not problem, but the situation was that I didn't have time to go out with the second unit, so I could make lists, but it didn't really mean as much as if, and what we ended up finally doing is if I, if the second unit people would come into the editing room and I could show them very literally what it was that I needed. And that worked out really well because we got all the pieces. I'm trying to think. I don't think we had any pickups for this film. We had two tiny reshoots, but we didn't have any pickups for missing um, narrative events. So everything 
fell into place during the shooting of the film, which is fantastic. That, to me, is one of the main reasons for the editor to be on the set. One of the main reasons. It's also up to a director to know that all the pieces are coming together and that you're being able to tell the story according to the director's vision with the material that you have been given. Sometimes, even if it doesn't come to a finished form during shooting, at least you know that you've got the connective tissue. You've got the, you've got the uh, elements that you need in order to be able to put it together. The studying of, of uh, Saladin and Bailey and in, out, in, out, that was a very critical part of creating the rhythm of the battle because uh, they're two different kind of soldiers. Saladin is a general. Balian is a get-in-there, get-your-hands-dirty kind of guy. So he's like from the lower ranks and... Even if Balian has all this engineering training and acumen as a strategist, he's still somebody who's going to participate. He's going to be doing the work himself, not just telling other people what to do. So that, to me, is, is also really important to show the difference of them as, as who they were. So it's almost like blue-collar versus white-collar in a way. And I think that difference is really key because I think it helps to set Balian up as somebody who sort of like he's just hardworking. He's like a hardworking guy, where Saladin is more of a, of a general who is orchestrating movements of his troop. I think Balian is doing both. The big thing that Ridley was referencing and I looked at as well was Triumph of the Will. Not that this um, necessarily replicates it in any way, but he, what he was trying to do was sort of create these shots, both of Balian and Saladin, that were sort of heroic. And we had a lot of cross-dissolves and low angles up and skewed angles, and we ended up simplifying it. This um, thing of the lineup of the soldiers getting into the, into the siege towers and pouring water on them really figured that if they were going to get doused with oil or, or be in situations of fire, that they would have doused themselves with water in advance to sort of protect themselves, just to make it a little bit harder. We had more guys on fire, more falling men on fire, and we just, not that we, you know, got rid of it, but we trimmed it down. And then there was a big question at some point, really, in order to get this feeling of them being engulfed, we were trying to go both directions, left and right, and at a certain point and in certain sections of the siege, I resorted back to just staying in the one direction. The Saracens were on the right, and the Jerusalem was on the left, and I, and I, I felt like it kind of helped to keep us um, sort of more in touch geographically with what was going on. Right, yeah, this was, yeah, that shot, the shot of the oil going down, all the shots of the oil hitting the 
That was the last second unit shot in the day of where's it's at, the grenade hitting the battering ram. Because I wanted to see, I was be- I begged for that shot, so I wanted to see the cause and effect, again, of Balian tossing his grenade and the battering ram lighting on fire. I just needed it. It was just a little, you know, like a 10-frame piece of glue that I needed to cut all the events together. We kind of decided, after everything was said and done, we had constructed the siege in order to be in the film with the story of the boy. And when we started taking the story of the boy out, we never went and adjusted the siege to be more balanced with a shorter film. So when we were doing the director's cut, we didn't have any urge to expand it because it was a shape that was meant to be in a film that had all of that other story in it. So we were really quite content with the siege itself, and we decided consciously not to change it. These shots were all shot in broad daylight. What he decided to do, we knew, we knew in the script the siege towers came down, but what wasn't in the script was the preparation for bringing the siege towers down. So it was kind of a flimsy thing, engineering-wise, of how Balian got the siege towers to come down. So that was sort of a conceit, a script-writing conceit, that Balian, this great strategist, was going to be able to bring the siege towers down. This isn't a fantasy film. This isn't Lord of the Rings. This is a historical epic where you're trying to present real people and real problems with real solutions. So... Ridley, in his desire and drive to make things as realistic and believable as possible, probably stayed up nights figuring out how to make it believable that Balian could bring the siege towers down. He needed to have some backstory to support the fact that Balian would be able to bring the siege towers down. So we had already shot all of these daylight shots of guys prepping and loading their scorpions, the scorpions that were attached to the rope, that we're going to pull the siege tower down. But the blocks were something that came to him while we were shooting. But the idea of the scorpions and the blocks was evolving over shooting, and I understood it right away when Ridley described it to me. It was never really scripted, and it was never really orchestrated in terms of how they shot everything. And just as the pieces started coming together, and then I would ask just another little piece and another little piece. So I was asking for all the pieces as they were shooting it. So we took something that was shot for a different purpose, and we we created a new scene out of it, which was the prep scene. Uh, I thought that was a great bit that I had of the that they shot with the flag floating down, where I was able to put the the rope whizzing by for the first hit into the first siege tower. Yeah, so we got we have all the ropes going first and then we launch the the blocks. From a practical sense, there was only one block and we added a second block. So we were doing it with two blocks, which I thought was good um, just to make it feel more like more weight. I thought that was really great. I love the way Ridley shot that with the receding background where they were tracking in and or tracking out and zooming in at the same time to give that feeling of, you know, 
Saladin coming closer and what's behind him was receding. That one tower that get, that's crumbles, that gets hit by the other tower, that was Victoria Alonza's idea, which I think she even said, I don't know why I'm saying this, because we don't have the money to make this happen, but <laughs> wouldn't it be great if one of the siege towers hit one of the other siege towers and it crumbled? So that little piece was, uh, I remember it like it was yesterday, her saying that, and then we were like, yes, that would be fantastic. Let's make that happen. So also the siege towers coming down, I have to say, is one of the real movie moments in the siege, more so than kind of anything else, because it is like kind of a, it is a stretch and Ridley was really conscious of this, that it was a stretch for this to happen. So we tried to make it as realistic as possible by doing the prep so that you anticipate it and it wouldn't feel like, whoa, where'd this come from? Out of nowhere. No, he planned it. This was one of the scenes where they had run out of time because this crane shot was so elaborate and took so long to set up and do it each time, and they did like four or five takes, and then they ran out of time, and they had to wrap. They did the crane shot, and then they did the closer master over the back of Saladin, and then they did the medium shot of Emad. But they hadn't done this close-up of Saladin, and Ridley wasn't planning to do it. And I already had the scene of Balian over the other grape, where I had a big close-up of Balian. And I insisted that we had had to have this close-up of Saladin. And because the schedules were so tight and Ridley was probably feeling pretty pinched for time, he felt like we could do the scene without this close-up. But I relentlessly put close-up of Saladin for that scene on my insert list, and eventually it was shot. Because to me, these are like parallel scenes and they actually have a parallel quality in the way that they're shot. Because there was a big crane shot that came over the wall and landed us in this courtyard. And then there was a medium on the patriarch, who's the parallel to Emat, and there was a close-up of Balian. And that's about it. That's all there was. And so, And I thought that it was really beautifully conceived and constructed to create a parallel between the two men. And so without the matching close-up on Saladin, I felt like the two scenes as having a parallel to each other were not as effective. And it's really also great to see that they're both pragmatists, yet they both have a very strong feeling about the dead. And I think that also because it wasn't heavily storyboarded it does give it a more natural feel there's like a kind of a grittier quality and a more uh present sense of the battle that things are happening and whoa this is happening here and oh that's happening there and uh and it doesn't feel balletic at all it feels gritty it feels real it feels a little bit more unexpected, even though we're still portraying Balian's strategy at the same time. More organic than it is uh, constructed piece by piece. I mean, and then the little pieces that came in through my ubiquitous, <laughs> ever-present list of shots that I wanted. 
we were all really fortunate that we were able to get all those shots because, and that it all came together. Because I'm sure I had more shots on my list than actually got got shot. But I was pretty dogged about requesting the things that I really needed. Actually, I really love this scene too. So, um, I, I, I in the script, I didn't think I was going to like this scene at all. But then uh, when it was all cut together and in the fabric, the overall fabric, I realized that there had to be this one last rallying speech because it seems so uh, hopeless. This shot, this next shot, that fireball, that was all sort of manufactured in editorial and CGI. It wasn't as a moment really ever really quite shot. I mean, we had the quick pan in and then we added the fireball. The pan in was very was a lot slower and I think I sped it up to like 120 frames and we even like just cut out frames and just created it as a really incredible whip pan. But the practical moment of the wall coming down where all the little pinhead uh, shields run forward, that was all practical. And this was a great moment. This this is just a practical take of them running forward. And, and um, in this kind of a scene, you need to have this squirming mass, but you also need to have the details. So you need to have events. And I thought that was brilliant, the way we let Balian lose his sword. You could see the sword close up foreground, kind of just drifting away from him, which could happen in in this kind of situation. He takes one swipe and it gets stuck in one person's body and the next thing you know he's grabbing somebody else's sword. So he's actually using now, uh, next time we cut back to him, he's using a Saracen sword. And um, and there's, there's something kind of uh, bizarre about that. There, he just lost his sword again. And now he went back and he got his sword back. And... Um, and there, yeah, that just brings him into focus and allows you to go into his headspace. The thing about this one last exchange in the breach, there's this sort of sinking feeling of the futility of it all. And having those details of the bloody faces just colors your whole impression of all the rest of it. Because here you see the squirming mass of humanity but without when it's a squirming mass of humanity from above you can't really see the blood you can't really see that these are individual people that are being hurt and or killed when you get those kind of details it just really drives it home so this was a really um, important scene for me I felt kind of emotionally because it's not just a battle that functions on a visceral level in terms of people being hurt I think it's a battle that functions narratively in terms of the futility of war. And this this is all in part of Ridley's design, both consciously and subconsciously, because of the kind of material that he gave me. And we didn't have a lot of discussions about it. Ridley never said to me, well, this scene is about the futility of war. everyone's exhausted or dead and we added a few shots 
of the aftermath of that battle and um, the shot of the gravedigger and Balian getting up to sort of get us back into, you know, the next day. But giving us a chance to, here's where we kind of right there, where we click back into the theatrical, um, to give us a chance to feel the results of all of this fighting, this senseless fighting. They will ask for terms. They must ask for terms. Convert to Islam. Repent later. You've told me a lot about religion. That's a great line that uh, convert, convert to Islam. That gets a really great laugh in the film. I think that the main thing that we added back in here was the dialogue about your king, such as he is. You can do with him what you want. I think that this scene, for the most part, is the same as it was in the theatrical, except we added the dialogue about Guy to kind of keep him alive in the story so that um, it wouldn't be coming out of left field when Balian and Guy have their fight. In the, in the street. Every stone and every Christian knight you kill will take ten Saracens with him. You will destroy your army here and never raise another. I swear to God that to take this city will be the end of you. I, th I love this scene because I think it's, it's so, this is definitely a chess game, this scene. Their poker faces are abound. We're, oh, Ridley always... <laughs> He loved that shot behind of the burning siege tower because it, to him it was like an oil derrick. So there was sort of a visual representation, a visual parallel to what's going on today. The fight over the, the, the fight over oil masquerading as a, a religious war. Right, well that's like, that's the whole thing is that it's meant to sort of ratchet into focus the fact that what has been masquerading as a religious war for centuries is actually a political and, and a war of commerce and it's an, and power over resources, over natural resources. So he loved that, that side angle two shot where the burning siege tower is in there because it was a representation, a subtle subconscious representation of that. It's not an oil, Derek. It's a siege tower, but... Depending upon how you look at it, it can remind you of that, or of you know nine eleven and the and the World Trade Center. Peace be with you. I love that moment when he says, "What is it worth? Nothing and everything," because at first when he says nothing, there's this look of kind of exhaustion and uh, of course nothing. He's of course he has to say that. And a feeling of futility from Balian. And then when he says everything, Balian gets this philosophical look on his face. And it just serves to let you know that Balian is growing through this experience.
this was a really important shot to me. I don't think Ridley felt, I mean, he shot it, obviously, so he gave it to me, but I was pretty insistent upon leaving it in all the way through because Bailey walking over all of the dead bodies just felt very, very sad and tragic to me. The other thing that's really interesting is that with visual effects being what they are and how long they take to make and how much they cost, that you're always trying to keep things short. I mean, they give you eight frame handles, and you don't always know in advance exactly how much time you're going to need for a given shot. So the one wide shot where Balian starts to walk down the hill of the breach, this one, I ordered it. I had to order it months before, and by the time everything was fleshed out, I every even now when I watch it, I feel, oh, I wish that was a little bit longer. But there was no way for us to order it and get it and have it be longer. So it it is what it is. There's no way for me to lengthen that shot. And also, it's the kind of thing that once all of the visual effects were in place, like I didn't have even a mock-up to know that how filled up the screen was going to be, how much time you needed to take it all in. And once I saw that, I was like, oh, I need more of that. But there was no way to get more. And I don't think there was too much of that going back and forth and redoing things to make them longer, but it does happen occasionally. I think this is a um, another movie moment where you feel this obligation to pay off the Balian and Guy relationship in some way. And it wasn't in the... I'm trying to remember if it was in the original script or, or whether it was in, out, in, out. Like they were trying... To, they were really deliberating by they. Ridley was really deliberating whether he should shoot it even at all. Because he felt like it... From a movie moment point of view, there's already been the truce, and Guy is, is so kind of over, and we've already been through this huge battle. Why do we have to have another fight? And why do we have to have Balian give Guy his comeuppance? He's already been trotted around on a donkey half-naked. I mean, he's a total nothing. So that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that you've been through a lot more with Guy now than you were before. And there's a certain kind of, maybe it's a testosterone gratification, which I think is, if it's going to be a testosterone gratification, is brilliantly handled because you still get to let Balian live up to his own moral code, which is that he's not going to, for no good reason, kill somebody. So he delivers the crashing blow. The crashing blow here is that he doesn't kill him. Guy is Reynald in this scene, where he fully expects to be killed, and instead, Balian kills him in a different way by delivering the the um, the knighting creed: "Rise a knight. If when you rise, if you rise, rise a knight." That he's basically saying, you know, become a man, and. I'm not going to kill you because I am a man. So if we're going to have a scene like this, I think that it's delivered in the best possible way because it's still 
unpredictable. It's still not following 100% the movie model, which would have been to kill him. That would have been the real movie model. By, the, by movie model, I mean the movie moment model. So I think it's a little bit of cake and eat it too here for the people who really want to see Guy get his comeuppance. And, I, and like I said, I think that the drive for that is a little bit more potent now because Guy plays such a bigger role. For the people who really want to see his comeuppance, he gets his comeuppance, yet we aren't hurting Balian's character and his arc. The other reason why it's back in there is because without it, we've added a lot more of Saladin at the end, and it felt a little bit like it would be weighted so heavily to Saladin that it seemed like it was out of balance for who the focal character of the film is to have added all of this stuff of Saladin and not add anything of Balian. Because other than the fight scene... There's nothing else added of Balian. So for the last 10 minutes of the film, we would have added like several minutes of Saladin and nothing of Balian, and I think that that was a little bit out of balance. And I think that Ridley was conflicted about it all the way up until the last minute when we finished it. And I think that in his mind it could go either way. Again, I should never try to put words in his mouth because he's somebody who's so inscrutable, but... I believe in his heart of hearts, it's not a scene he really feels very strongly about. And it's almost the kind of thing that if we had one more day of editing, he might have taken it out. It's just that we had to stop at some point. And when we first started doing the director's cut, he says, oh, you have to put it back in. You have to. And then at other times, he's like, yeah, maybe we don't have to put it back in. And then so... It's strange that a scene that seems to be so pivotal that someone could be so ambivalent about. But I think he is. I think he is ambivalent about it. The whole purpose of this is to show that the respect for the cross... He walks around the grave, not because it's Baldwin's grave, but because it's a cross. And the Muslim tradition is not to desecrate religious iconography. So that's what's behind him picking the cross up and putting it back on the table, and what is behind him walking around the cross on the ground. It's a sign of respect. And that it's Baldwin's grave is great, if you know that but it doesn't really matter if you know it or not. I also love playing off the patriarch with just that one little sweep of his cape where he looks so dejected and he's just walking out with the commoners. So the rest of the refugees, I should say. That shot of the wind, it's such a stunning shot. It's all practical. There are no wind machines. That's just wind blowing the sand across the desert. And uh, these shots of Sibylla where she's like really enshrouded in dust and wind, that's just all practical. But it was a really hard thing to shoot because the wind was going a thousand miles an hour and they couldn't get anybody's wardrobe to behave and wind was blowing in everybody's face. Ridley 
did such a nice understated thing here with Bailey and getting off of the horse and walking beside um, Sibylla. There was a discussion of ending the film here, potentially ending the film here. And we felt that after such a long journey that it was a good thing to kind of tie up the whole, all the rest of France and leave it with a little bit more of an uplifting ending. So we added this back again as a parallel. This is a John Ford shot, push out through the door and out to the landscape. And then, um, so we just added it back to give it the bookend quality. Balian makes the same walk, but as a different man. And now we know the uh, better the meaning. Well, we knew it before, but the meaning of the, the quote. And now we were able to put back in the shot of the tree where Balian looks out at the tree because the tree has more weight as a result of having had the flashback to the wife in, in the beginning of the film. We also had a version of the end of the film without Sibylla, where he rides off alone. And that, again, was a big... Uh, discussion as to whether or not Balian should go off alone or with Sibylla. And I think that, again, it's that question of people have gone on such a long, hard journey that you're going to let them go with something a little bit more optimistic. I am the blacksmith. And I am the king of England. I am the blacksmith. When we first took out the flashback to the wife in the beginning of the film, we then also felt we had to take out this bit of the tree in the theatrical version I'm talking about. But something felt amiss without it, because there was something here in Balian in terms of kind of making a statement that things can go on, that there is such a thing as new life and new growth and new beginning. We didn't want it to feel as trite as that, but because we didn't have anything else to do with it, we felt it was more important to have that and what that represented, even without knowing about the, the flashback to the wife, than to not have it at the end. Otherwise, it just felt like a series of events rather than a treatise on the growth of Balian's character. So it did more for Balian's character to keep the tree in than to take it out. But once the flashback of the wife is there, the tree has much more complex meaning, and I'm grateful for that.
Well, I have to say, honestly, that because the studio didn't understand this film, they didn't really know how to market it either. And that meant that the emphasis to the movie going public was on the wrong thing. And then the movie going public was allowed to perceive the film in another genre as though it were not successful, in the wrong genre. It isn't in the genre that it was marketed for. And sadly, I do believe that how a film is marketed and how it is presented to the public has a huge impact on, on how a viewer will perceive it when they sit down. So I think that there was an expectation that this was an action-adventure sword and sandal film, when in fact it's not. It's a historical epic. If the film had been presented as a prestige piece, which is really what it is, historical epics are prestige pieces. They're things that where the audience has to work harder. They know that going in. They set aside their right amount of time, and they're prepared for that. It could have been presented by the studio as as a prestige piece along the lines of Lawrence of Arabia or Gandhi, where there are central characters who go through transformation that is set on a backdrop of historical events. That's really what this is. It's not a sword and sandal film. It's not an action-adventure film. So what happened is people went into the theater with the expectation of sword and sandal action-adventure film, and they were disappointed by a slightly watered-down version of what the director's real vision was. And because of the lack of support and positioning of the film by the studio as a prestige piece, there was actual talk, I believe there was, I don't even know by the way, I guess there was talk in the public sector about it before it even barely was out of the starting gate as a disappointment. I had dinner with a friend of mine the other day, and he was saying that he had some time off. He's a producer, and he had some time off. So during his time off, he decided, you know, I'm going to just watch every film that's ever been nominated for an Academy Award. In some cases, he couldn't even find the film. He couldn't even rent it. That meant he went on, on a research mission, that they were films that were so obscure that he had never even heard of, and they had just sort of faded away into obscurity. And he was telling me this, more of just a commentary, basically, on film history and what is enduring and what is not. And to know, obviously, the number one thing is that you just have to do your best work at all times, regardless of what you think the future life of the film will be. That's the, the first rule. But the second rule is to know that even if there are kudos and or attention that happen in the present, it doesn't necessarily endure into the realm and world of classics and what is considered a classic, and that there are contemporary trends that don't necessarily follow a film into its appreciation through the ages in order to determine whether it's a classic or one of the masterpieces. And there are many, many films that are now considered to be masterpieces that were not appreciated at the time that they were released. So I take all of that information in and use it as a way to maintain my state of enthusiasm for what I do 
aside from however it is appreciated at the moment that it is released. My feeling about this film is that it's a beautiful film, a bold, bold gesture, a very brave film to make at the time that it was being made. And it's my hope that it will endure as a masterpiece or as a work of art and that will be an appreciated part of Ridley's oeuvre. All I can do is have faith because I don't have a crystal ball. But I have faith in that and I know the feeling that I have when I watch the film. And almost that in and of itself is enough gratification. But I think that there are large numbers of people who were deeply moved by the theatrical version, and I'd like to think that that will increase exponentially when they see the director's cut. Thanks for listening. <laughs>